third line of reasoning is based on this. The next two lines are. Here were 12 men. Apostles. 11 of the 12 died martyrs' death. John died in exile. Judas was replaced. 11 of the 12 died martyrs' deaths for one thing. In their own words, now this is key, in their own words, in Acts 1, 1 to 3, they said, after Jesus Christ was crucified, killed, and buried, which meant four professional executioners signed his death warrant, that after he was killed and buried, the apostles in their own words said that he appeared to them. And they used the phrase, with many convincing proofs, which means in the Greek, overwhelming evidence that he was raised from the dead. But here's the clincher. They said, over a period of 40 days. Not 40 hours, not four days. Now you hear me, folks? They said, for 40 days, he appeared to them with many convincing proofs that he'd been raised from the dead. Then they were tortured. Never once denied it. In many of my debates, and apart from debates, I would appeal to my opponent, give me one piece of evidence that under torture they ever denied that in the third day Christ was raised from the dead. And not one opponent in 47 years. You could all go away, all the way back to trifle the Jew. Could not deny it. They were tortured, some of the worst torture in history. And they were killed. They were martyred. For the resurrection. That for 40 days he'd appeared to them with many convincing proofs that he was raising the dead. People say to me in the university and other places, come on, Josh, you're making too big of a deal out of it. A lot of people have died for a lie. They're right. Folks, there's been a lot of people in history who have died for lies. So you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, I'll tell you what it was to me as an obnoxious university student. Yes, a lot of people have died for a lie. Men and women. They always believed it was the truth. People don't die for lies. They die for lies that they believe is the truth. History confirms one thing. Liars don't make good martyrs, folks. Now here's what I struggle with as a non-Christian. Yes, a lot of people have died for a lie, but they always thought it was the truth. Now, if the resurrection was a lie, men and women, they had to know it. Come on, they said in their own words that for 40 days he appeared to them, to 500 at one time with many convincing proofs that he'd been raising the dead. No, if that didn't happen, they had to know it. At least one of them had to. They had to know it. And therefore, you would have to conclude that they not only died for a lie, but they knew it was a lie, went through the worst torture, never once denied it, and were killed for it. As a non-believer, I concluded, if that were true, that would be 11 miracles greater than the miracle of the resurrection. That would go against everything I've ever understood of human nature and history. How many of you here have ever seen the illusionist magicianist Andre Cole perform? Let me see your hands. One, two, three, a number of you. What's happened with the rest of you? You've been impoverished. You haven't lived until you've seen Andre Cole perform. Let me show you who he is. <clears throat> he lives in Phoenix, Arizona right now, in the suburbs of Phoenix. Andre Cole, who's an illusionist, a magician, and all other illusionist magicians in the world would probably agree, almost unanimously, that David Copperfield is the greatest creator, or the greatest illusionist alive or magician. Even Andre Cole would agree with that. But David Copperfield and other illusionist magicians would all agree that Andre Cole is the greatest creator of illusion alive, or possibly in all of history. 
as a creator of illusion. An average illusionist, if they created three to six, nine, twelve illusions a year, it was outstanding. For the last 30 years, every day he creates three new illusions. 90 to 93 a month for 30 years. He has not only created, he's created many more in this, but sold over 1,000 illusionary acts and magicio, magical effects, all from one mind. Brilliant man, wealthy man. He's the only man alive who can boast. He has never, ever been fooled by another illusionist. He always knows how it was done. People get all upset when he would do magic and they would call it black magic and the spirits and all. Oh, that's so ridiculous. Everyone, it was just a simple trick. Simple trick. I'd say to him, how'd you do that? And he'd always say, very well. But it was a simple trick. I don't know if you remember a number of years back, it hit all world television, everything about these psychic healers in the Philippines and how without instruments or anything else, they would operate, reach in, pull out the organs and everything. And oh, people, oh, this is supernatural and everything else. <laughs> Andre got in a plane, flew over there and repeated it immediately. It was a mere trick. And people go, oh, it's supernatural. No, it's just a mere trick. Uh, what he does and all the other illusionists, they just use it to impress people. And um, he was a skeptic, quite an outspoken skeptic. A friend of mine challenged him to take his ability is the only man alive who can boast he's never been fooled by another illusionist. And to take modern technology and explain away the miracles of Christ as illusions and magic. Now that's a pretty good challenge, folks. I wonder how many of us in this room would have thought of that. He did it. In the process, he became a believer. I lived in Vancouver, British Columbia at the time, and he flew up and spent three days with me. <laughs> wow. Most people don't get three minutes with a master. I had three days with the master. I just wish I had it on videotape. He shared why I accepted the challenge. He thought it'd be easy to explain it away. He said, Josh, some of them I could explain away, just several of them, but most of them I couldn't. Now here's a man who had never admitted that before, always knew exactly how it was done. But he said, there was one miracle that Jesus did that I can state categorically, there's absolutely no way with all modern technology, everything that Jesus could have deceived his disciples. This is when he pointed out to me something I didn't know. Two things. One, he said, Josh, an illusionist will almost never, ever, ever do an illusion outdoors. He said, you'd be foolish to. You've got to control the lighting, the visual approach, everything. He said, what amazed me, almost all of Jesus' miracles were done outdoors. He said, you'd be crazy to do that today, one of them, let alone almost all of them. Then he said, and this, this amazed me, he said, Josh, to do some of the illusions that I create for Copperfield and others and for myself, he said, I'll often take an 18-wheeler semi-load of equipment to do one illusion. He said, Jesus had a donkey. No, that's significant. That's, Jesus had a donkey. But okay, Andre, his real name is Bob Gertler. I said, Bob, what was that one miracle? What was that one miracle? There's absolutely no way through modern technology anyway that Jesus could have saved. He said, the resurrection. He said, Josh, if Christ was not raised from the dead, they had to know it. And I said, that's right. Then you would be saying that 11 of these 12 men 
not only died for a lie, but they knew it was a lie. And through some of the most horrible torture, never once denied it and died for it. Get real. I, I mean, the Christian faith is intelligent faith, not a blind faith. You'd have to have a blind faith to believe that. If I cannot trust them on what Jesus said and did, I can't trust anyone. They went through the test of death to determine their veracity. They signed their testimony in blood. Now, be careful. Here's another principle I developed. The extremity of the sacrifice speaks nothing of the truth. Got to be careful here. Just because someone dies for something doesn't mean it's true. Be careful there. Just because I have people talk about radical Muslims and others, and they say, well, there must be truth to it. They're willing to give their lives. I said, no. That has no, because they're willing to give their lives has nothing to do with it being true. It has to do with this, that they believe it's true. You see the difference? Folks, there's a huge difference there. Just because someone sacrifices their life does not mean it's true. It does mean this. They believed that it was true. Well, when it came to the disciples, if it wasn't true, they had to know it. I can't trust them. I couldn't trust anyone. I'd have to be a total historic agnostic and a contemporary agnostic, and you can't live that way. The fourth line of reasoning is um, follows in the same premise. Twelve men, eleven of the twelve died martyrs' deaths. John died in exile. They died for one thing, that after he was killed and buried, that after three days he appeared to them with many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days. They were tortured, never once denied it, and were killed for it. People say, well, Josh, a lot of people have died for a great cause. They're right. A lot of people have died for a great cause. <laughs> A lot of people have died for lousy causes, too. They say, well, what's the big deal? Well, I'll tell you what it was for me, folks. This is when I knew I was going to become a Christian. That Saturday night in my dorm when I wrestled with this. I didn't become a Christian right then, but I knew I was going to. I knew intellectually I didn't have a leg to stand on. Yes, a lot of people have died for a great cause, but you know what stumped me? Their great cause died on the cross. What did they die for? See, most people don't think that far along. What did they die for then? Yes, a lot of people have died for a great cause, but their great cause died on the cross. What did the apostles die for? Let me give you some context for grasping that. You ever wonder why, when you're reading the Gospels, you ever just hit your thinking for a little bit, why couldn't the disciples understand Jesus? Why was he always correcting them? Do you not know? Have you not read? Is it not written? Over and over ago. Especially when it came to the resurrection. Why? Here's why. The interesting twist of history, beautiful twist. The Jews taught and believed there were two messiahs coming once each. Jesus said, no, there's one messiah coming twice. Interesting, isn't it? I document all this. The Jews taught the first Messiah would be the son of Joseph, the suffering Messiah who would die for the sins of the world. But the second Messiah would be who? The son of David, the king Messiah 
who would throw the hated usurpers out and rule the world from Jerusalem. Jesus said, no. I am coming first to die, and I'm coming back to reign. You say, well, come on, how could they get such crazy thinking? Not crazy thinking, folks. It was easy to, for a Jew to arrive at that. Read the Old Testament. One book could talk about a suffering Messiah, the next book talks about a reigning political Messiah. One verse would talk about a political Messiah, eight verses later, it'll talk about a suffering Messiah. So the Jews said, there must be two Messiahs coming once each. Jesus said, no, there's one Messiah coming twice. Well, this is what happened. Palestine was invaded. And they were slaughtering the Jews. Some of the historical accounts, and I document this, said the bodies were stacked 20 feet high. That would be two stories high all over Jerusalem. They were slaughtering the Jews. And the Jewish people were walking away from their leaders and weren't following them anymore. Why? (laughs) Put yourself in their place. Here they're being slaughtered. And the Jewish leaders to hold their allegiance saying, Hang in there! Stand tough! The Messiah is coming and he's going to die for you. Really? Now that is encouraging. What happens if I die before he gets here? Do they have a grandfather clause? No, I mean... And they started to walk away. Because who's going to follow a dead Messiah? And so the Jews, if any two people learn to adapt in history, it's the Armenians and the Jews. They've had to for survival. And the Jews adapted, and I documented it from their writings. They started to teach, as many teach today, that the first Messiah, the suffering Messiah, the son of Joseph, was who? Not Jesus, not John the Baptist, who? The Jews. They say, what? Yeah. They say, we're the Messiah. Look at our history. Look at all the suffering in our history. That's God taking the sins of the Gentiles and visiting them on us. I call it the Messianic complex. This is why in my country, in a program on CNN called Larry King Live, this one Jewish leader blamed the Holocaust for killing six million Jews upon the Gentiles. said, why? Because God took their sins and visited upon us as the Messiah. That the Holocaust was part of the suffering for the redemption of the world. So then they started to teach the second Messiah. The son of David. The king Messiah was the one who was going to come. Why? The suffering Messiah already came. The Jews. Israel. Now we anticipate the reigning political Messiah who will throw the hated usurpers out who cannot die and will rule the world from Jerusalem. Every Jew was taught that from childhood up. Now ask yourself your own question. What kind of Messiah were the Jews looking for, even the disciples? A suffering Messiah? No, read the New Testament. A reigning political Messiah. The son of David. Lord, can we reign in your right hand? They weren't saying, come on, put up 12 crosses, let us suffer. They said, no, can we reign, not suffer? They were getting impatient with Jesus. Come on, they left everything. They left their fishing. It wasn't that big of a deal because I think Peter thought whatever he would lose financially in his closing down his fishing industry, he would make up for it, reigning in the kingdom. They left everything to follow the king. See, we somehow think because of suffering Messiah. No, that's not why they left. They didn't think Jesus was going to die or anything. He can't. He's a Messiah. They left to follow him as the king. They were getting a little impatient. Come on, Jesus, when are you going to get your act together? Remember they said, is it now, finally, is it now you're going to set up your kingdom? Were they thinking of a suffering Messiah? No. 
a reigning political Messiah. That's why they couldn't understand Jesus. Jesus said, I came to suffer. No, don't go into Jerusalem. They'll kill you. He said, you don't understand. I've got to go in there. I'm going to be crucified and buried. And the third day, be raised from the dead. And they said, and they didn't understand it. Why? How can the Messiah die? They were just trying to hedge their bets by telling them not to go in there just in case. But something happened. Yes, a lot of people have died for a great cause, but men and women, what I struggled with was this. Their great cause died on the cross. What'd they die for? I can see Peter talking to John. John, John, what do we do? He's dead. John, he's not the Messiah. We were wrong. John, how could we have made such a mistake? What's going to, John, we've stood against Rome. They're going to kill us. John, we've stood against Israel. We've stood against God. When they left and went back to their houses, it wasn't so much that they were cowards, folks. They were depressed. They were disillusioned. Come on, put yourself in their shoes, their sandals. And try to feel what they were going through. They had left everything to follow the king. They were going to reign. All their hopes, their ambitions, their visions, everything died on the cross. It says and went back and hid themselves in their own homes. What I struggled with that Saturday night was, what happened in the lives of the apostles? Not over a period of months and years, but in days and weeks. You don't have to read the Bible to know it. Their lives were turned upside down. In the light of all of this, they went out and turned the world upside down. They were tortured and they were killed. And never, ever once denied that on the third day, he was raised from the dead. That Saturday night, in my dorm room, I was all alone, but I uttered right out loud. And this is when I knew I was going to become a Christian. I just put my hand down on my desk and said, He is risen. Oh, I didn't want to believe that. He is risen. Without the resurrection, I cannot even come close to explaining what happened to the lives of the apostles, what happened to the very founding of the church. Look, I've read all the great thinkers. I've read all the thinkers that think they're great. And not one of them have ever come close to satisfying my intellectual curiosity. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then what happened to the lives of the apostles? Folks, if I can't trust them, what Jesus said and what Jesus did, then I can't trust anyone. I'll tell you this. <laughs> if they did not believe that Jesus said, I am the truth, they never would have gone through that torture and then killed for it. Peter said, I am a truth. I am one of many truths. Or I am a way, just one of many ways. They went through the test of death to determine their veracity. And if I can't trust them, then I'd have to give up on life. And oh, whoa, what a miserable person you would be. I can hold the New Testament in my hand and say what I have is what was written down. And what was written down was true. Jesus said this, and Jesus did that. I say, well, Josh, why do you, why do you get all involved in all the manuscripts and all this detail and everything else? I'll tell you why. Look at it this way, the New Testament. I'll just hone in the New Testament. God said, I have created you for a purpose. He mainly created us because he chose. He didn't have to. He chose to create us to share his love with us and have a relationship with his creation. 
Not that God had to have, I mean, people teach that God had to do that to be complete, to love. Oh, look, between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he could love all he wanted. But he chose. In Exodus 34, 14, the Word of God says this. I discovered this as an unbeliever. It says, you shall worship no other God but the Lord. Now, your translations will probably say, for his name is jealous. He is a jealous God. You know what the connotation of that is in the original? It's this. You shall worship no other God but the Lord, for he is a God. This is what jealous means, for he is a God who is passionate about his relationship with you. Wow! The God creator of the universe is passionate about a relationship with you and me, every one of his creation. So God said, I've created you with a purpose. I want a relationship with you. I want to share my love with you. But a problem developed, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin entered the human race. And the relationship of God was broken. But God wanted to breach that chasm. He said, I want a relationship with you, but to have it, it has to be a right relationship. So God revealed himself. Because I don't care how smart you are. You cannot reason your way to God. You can't. You think you're smart. Your mind is like a pea in a pod. So God said, I'm going to reveal who I am, who God the Father is, because you won't find out otherwise. I'm going to reveal to you who God the Son is, who God the Holy Spirit is. I'm going to reveal to you what heaven is, what hell is. I'm going to reveal to you what righteousness is, what sin is. I'm going to reveal to you what love is, what family is. I'm going to reveal to you what righteousness is. I'm going to reveal to you salvation, how you can know me. I'm going to reveal all this to you, which he did in the New Testament. But then what is neat, God Yahweh not only said, I'm going to reveal my heart and mind to you, but he said, I'm going to protect it for 2,000 years. So even in 2008, you can open up the scriptures and have a confidence. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. God has protected his word down through the years. Men and women, we so take the scriptures for granted. But not realizing many people sacrificed their lives. Many were martyrs for you and me to have the confidence in God's word today. Many people spent their entire lives in scholarship to protect God's word. We can know what it means. Because even now God says, I want a relationship with you. Well, I can open the scriptures and I can know what that relationship is. I can know who God is. I can know how he responds. That's why I get excited about the scriptures. And even more than that, one, as a Christian, I owe it to myself to know the answers. Second, I owe it to my children. If my children cannot tell you why Jesus said, I am the truth and I have failed as a father. I owe it to my friends. I owe it to every person I ever meet. I owe it to every Muslim I ever come to love. To be able to intelligently share why I trust the Bible over against any other literature in history as the Word of God, God-breathed, God-spoken, and it is historically accurate and reliable. When I go up and ask people the question, are you a Christian? It just blows my mind. I mean... Always the answers will come back to the scriptures. Always. I can always bring the question back to the scriptures. Why? Some may say, well, because I trusted Jesus Christ as saving Lord. How do you know he's saving Lord? Well, because it says so in the Bible. Well, why are you a Christian? Because I believe in Jesus. Well, how do you know he's worth believing in? Because of the Bible. How do you know the Bible's true? It always comes back to the Bible, folks. And I owe it to every person I ever meet. They give an answer to the hope that is in me yet with reverence and gentleness.
I owe it to be obedient to the scriptures. Study, show yourself approved unto God, a workman needeth not be ashamed. I owe it to my Savior because he said you shall know the truth. Not ignore it. Know the truth. And it's pretty hard to share the truth when you don't know the truth. More and more people will start questioning the Christian faith. A lot of it because of the internet. In fact, tell you the truth, I think it's kind of healthy. Maybe it'll drive more and more and more Christians to come to understand not only what they believe, but why they believe it. Folks, we serve a great God. And just remember, it's all about Him. But if it's all about Him, then, know you, then how do you know what it's all about? The Scriptures. But if you have reservations about the Scripture, then it undermines all your authority. All your authority. Folks, take to heart. Now, we've just briefly covered this. In a moment, I want to throw it open for questions for a short time. Before that, I want to do something I get criticized for. And that's okay. I'm a big boy. I want to sell you some resources. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. What I want to do is sell you a lot of resources. You probably never had a speaker say that in South Africa, have you? At least I'm honest. I do. I truly, why? I care. Because there's no way you're going to come here and sit. And 90% of you never took notes. You might have a photographic mind, but you don't have any film. You might have a digital mind, but no memory card. And by the time you walk out of here, you will forget 95% of everything that was taught today. I can't believe people in my church. Jeez, I think some Christians have nothing upstairs. They go to church and they sit there with their arms folded and just listen and walk out with nothing. It's unbelievable. You don't remember. I did. Four or five years ago, I did a graduation speech at Biola University for my son's graduation. Probably some of you heard about it. One of the most quoted speeches in history. Next to Churchill. I took it very seriously. When it was my son's graduation. So I went to, I think it was 27 people who had graduated the year before, and James Dobson, a focus in the family, was a speaker. And I said to him, what did he talk about? Not one of them could give one single point that Dobson had made. One guy ventured to say, well, it probably was about the family. The year before was Chuck Colson. I went to 12 graduates. And I said, what did he talk about? Not one person could give me one point that Chuck Colson made. So I went to my staff, 60-some staff. I said, how many of you here remember... Anything, one little thing from your graduation speech. Out of 66 people, only one could. It was because the speaker was Bill Cosby, and he remembered a joke he told. You know what I concluded? Commencement addresses are worthless. You know what I did? It was 90 seconds long after spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on research, I concluded, and I got up. I just walked to the podium, looked at the audience for a little bit, scanned it several times, and we all got a little uneasy, and then finally I said, if you want your life to count for Christ, after Biola, then never, ever, ever, ever stop pursuing a loving, intimate relationship with your wife and spend time with your children. I repeated it twice and sat down. The place was shocked, and pretty soon the graduating class went to a rousing standing ovation. Probably because they were glad it was short. Over 
hundred magazines wrote articles on that graduation speech. Why did he say that? Now in Biola, they quote it as the greatest speech ever given at Biola University. And it was 90 seconds long. But tell you what, people still remember it. Somewhere in Africa in the last two weeks, a guy walked up to me. And the first thing he said, he was a missionary, he said, don't ever, ever stop pursuing a loving, intimate relationship with your wife and spend time with your children. My heart went, wow, it worked! Years later, the problem is, folks, you don't remember. You'll go out and just say, I heard some nice things. But that doesn't help people. And so these resources can help. Probably one of the most important, it's a huge one, it's the size of about eight books. Look at that thing. Called The New Evidence that Demands of Our... I've rewritten it five times, and this is the latest, complete updating with all the new evidence, everything. If you've got any of the older copies, throw them away. It's, I mean, oh, there's so much new evidence coming out all the time. And you have to deal with it in a different way so it's understood in the culture. For example, in here, I had to take a whole section on truth. Because is it true if it's true for you, but it's not true for me? <laughs> That's about the dumbest statement anyone could make. And people make it all the time in the younger generation. Is there truth whether you believe it or not? I had to deal with that because that's an issue today. Then I had to deal with history. I had to take a whole section on history. Because non-believing history professors said, we're going to marginalize Christianity. We're going to make it impotent. But how? We're going to marginalize it by people to come and understand there is no historical truth. It's only personal perspective. Now that's your truth. That's your opinion. That's your perspective. Well, is there a historical truth apart from your belief? Is there things that are totally true whether you believe them or not? I challenge you to get this book. Now, folks, I don't know what it costs. I don't get anything from it. Why? I should know I don't. 39 years ago, I signed a statement. I wrote up a contract and signed it that all my royalties have to be given away. Now, they've been into the multi-millions of dollars. They've all been, they go to the board at Campus Crusade for Christ. Now, my wife thinks that's dumb. But I said, honey, I wrote and signed that contract 39 years ago. You married me 38 years ago. Who's dumb? <laughs> and I... I kid her with that. But I challenge you to get this book. Now, most of you won't. Most of you won't. Most of you will probably never, most of you here even will probably never really become an instrument used of God to impact your world for Christ. You're too lazy. You're too lazy. I challenge you to get this book and just read 15 minutes a day for one year. One page. Some of you men say, well, I don't like to read. I don't like to drink water, but I do to survive. You read this one page a year for one year, one page a day, you will be a different person. I'll guarantee you. You will start to learn truth. You start doing what most young people, teenagers, say to me, well, I couldn't do it. I said, why? Well, after a while, I wanted to read two pages. Then I had to read three pages. It's kind of like watching the TV show 24 You've got to get to the next one. But you'll learn truth that you don't even know even exists right now. And it's all there in this document. You don't have to trust me. If you read any of my books, you know I document on it. And then the book, boy, this is a, <laughs> this will tax, tax you intellectually, In Search of Certainty. Is there any such thing as truth? Is there? Well, if there is, can you know it? I'd estimate that 98% of you here couldn't answer that question. Now you could answer the traditional Christian quotation, but they don't hold water. Is there any such thing as truth? Do you think it's so obvious? <laughs> I'll challenge your thinking. And if there is truth, can you even know it? You study this, you'll be one step ahead of any teenager in your country on truth. Then the resurrection factor. Ah, one of my two or three favorite themes in all life, the resurrection. 
It was one of the three things that brought me to Christ. And I concluded that if I walked away from the resurrection, I would have to exercise a blind faith. That if I did not accept the truth of the resurrection, then I had to be blind. And then there's many other books out there, answers and reasons. Half this book, I took 300 questions asked me by university students. Two of them are right here at the University of Vitt. And then I wrote out the answers and then narrowed it down to the toughest ones and came out with a book on answers. And these are some questions a lot of Christians won't ask because they're afraid there's no answer. Folks, there's an answer for everything. Now, you might not know it. I might not know it. But there is an, I've learned that over the years. There is an answer. I face some things I say, absolutely, there can be no answer to that. Absolutely no answer. And all of a sudden, something is discovered in archaeology or something else, and you go, oh. It's so simple. You see, before you can answer something that's so profound, once you know the answer, it's so simple. That's life. And then many other books here. The one, More Than a Carpenter. It's a small book, only 80-some pages, about 80, 96 pages. What I was, I was in Chicago. There's a rock and roll McDonald's there. It's a McDonald's that has a rock and roll theme. And, uh, and I've written a lot of chapters of books there because when I write, I've got to have activity. I've got to have noise, movement, everything. If I had to get alone in a room, I'd get bored. I think I got A-D-D-D-D-D. Well, I'm serious. If I don't have all kind of noise going on, man, I am postmodern from the word go. Or post-idiot, one or the other. And uh, I just got to have all... And... So I told my wife, I'm going to cross the street, I'm going to get some legal pads. I'm going back to the condo we were staying in, in the old part of Chicago, and I said, I'm not going to bed, not going to sleep or leave until I write a book. 48 hours later, this came off 12 legal pads. Never dreaming, become one of the most read books in history. It's one of the top sellers in the Muslim world. Simply called More Than a Carpenter. You and I had a cup of coffee together. And you simply said to me, Josh, why do you believe? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe in the Bible? How in the world can you believe in the resurrection? What I would share with you over a two-hour cup, or maybe ten cups of coffee, decaffeinated, what I would share with you would be more than a carpenter. That's how I wrote it. In my mind, I was just sitting having coffee with somebody, and as fast as I could write, I wrote the book out. And... I'll tell you this, you give it to six corporate executives, two will come to Christ. I can't explain it. Give it to six teenagers, two will come to Christ. Give it to six Muslims, two will come to Christ. I'm thankful for it. It just means God the Holy Spirit has chosen to use it, and the moment he chooses not to, it'll go by the wayside. Let's take some questions right now. It's not your time to preach or make statements. It's time to ask questions. When you become the speaker, you get to preach. Yes, sir, way back there. Uh, sorry, my question is just with regards to, obviously we might get involved in some arguments with people with regards to this. And my question is just how do I approach that? Because I've uh, lost a few rugby games in my life and a few chess games and a few card games. And it's never a nice feeling losing an argument. So maybe I've got all the facts and I'm speaking to somebody. I lost a basketball game, but we won the state championship. Boy, was it nice. So, so I'm just wondering, how do you approach an argument with somebody and not at the end of the day you have got a big smoke on your face because you won the argument and they have the sense that they lost? Well, you're already defeated if you go in to win an argument. Yeah. I never look to win an argument or anything. Yeah. I, I look to be able to share the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Answer any questions legitimately. And so I don't go in to argue or to win with anyone. I go in to share Christ. And the best way is for that individual to know that you care and you love them. You don't have to take a long time to do that. Most people I've ever led to Christ, well, I mean, in crowds, it's been probably a few million, but uh, on one-on-one, almost all of them was within knowing them 45 minutes. Most people have led to Christ. And yet, within five minutes, they knew that I cared. My attitude, I listened to them. I listened to their opinion. 
I answered their questions. And then I shared, not in an arrogant way, but I shared in a way because I care. And I always share with another person a way that what they do with the information is not my responsibility. I am to share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, backed up by a lifestyle, and call for a decision. If I do that, I am successful, whether they accept Christ or not. That's their responsibility. I'm the responsibility to love them, to be filled with the Holy Spirit by faith, to share the truth, and back it up by the way I live and the way I treat them, and leave the results to God. And one of the finest things I know when you don't know the answer, just say, I don't know the answer. When I hear anyone speak or talk to them, when they always have the answer, I don't trust them. Because nobody has all the answers. When somebody's able to admit publicly, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And when they do it, give an answer that I'm not familiar with, I trust them more. But don't ever be afraid to say, I don't know. And don't be afraid to say, you know, I'll find out and let's get together next week. That will force you to learn more. Uh, but just remember, the best defense of Christianity is not all the evidence and the arguments, none of that. It's not modernism or anything. The best defense, and I write this out in, in Evidence of Man's Verdict. I had to do a, a thesis, a, well, it was like a thesis. It was in philosophical apologetics, and 85% of your grade was the paper you handed in at the end. And that puts a little pressure on you. And I knew the professor wanted something that was in his notes, but I disagreed with him on what the best defense of Christianity was. He thought it was all of his evidence and everything, and I didn't. So I kept putting it off, putting it off, and the night before, I knew I'd better start it. That was often when I hit the panic button anyway. So I started to write, and I put down, says, many people will say, in football, I mean American football, that the best offense is a good defense. But I say unto you with Christianity, the best defense is a good offense. I said the best offense for Christianity is a clear, simple presentation of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, backed up by a lifestyle and calling for a decision. Then I wrote out my testimony, and I wrote out the four spiritual laws from Campus Crusade, gave some evidence for the resurrection, and handed the paper in. I got the only A in the class. He did a bell curve. And for years until he passed away, Dr. Bass was one of the most brilliant men in America would quote my paper and say he was the only student that ever corrected me. And he said the best defense is a good offense. Always keep that in mind. Well, thank you. Share the, it's about him, not us. And I don't mind losing a battle if I can win a soul. I don't mind at all. And it doesn't, mind, it doesn't bother me to say I don't know. Yeah. Uh, okay, sir, you're book uh, since 1975 was instrumental in my giving my life to the Lord. But well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. But since then, I've been a keen follower of you. But my question today is Dawkins' book, uh, The God Delusion. If you got a short commentary on that, please. It's a delusion. <laughs> Next question. On Dawkins' book on delusion, I think it's good to read it. But I have to come back. I would love to sit down with someone like Dawkins in the past with people like him. I have, but I've never had the chance with Dawkins. He'll probably die pretty soon and find out if it is a delusion. But I always sit down with someone like that and say, let's define truth. Well, you have to do that with young people today in the postmodern culture. Uh, what is truth? What can we agree on? Because when we find out something that we can agree on, being truth, then we have no basis for dialogue to ever arrive at truth. So I'll say, okay, what is truth? I'll let them define truth. And, and usually, I can respond to another person's definition of truth. Well, most of the time they don't have one, so I have to give mine anyway. They don't. I would say 95% of you here couldn't define truth. Ah, you'll say, God, that's ridiculous. 
To say God is truth when you can't define truth is a meaningless statement. That's like saying God is factor X. Fill in the blanks. I'm serious. It's like love. You can almost never find anyone who could define love. And then our Christians say, God. Oh, that's ridiculous. You can't define love to say God is love is a meaningless statement. That's it's God is factor X, fill in the blanks. Right here in this room, we would have at least 80 different definitions of love right here this afternoon. So if you say, well, define love by saying God, then you've got 80 different definitions of God, and 99% will probably be wrong. So you've got to define terms. And I would define truth. And be interesting, I'm not sure I could get it from his book how he would define truth. I would define truth by that which has fidelity to the original. Now doesn't that change your life? Doesn't it seem dumb? That which has fidelity to the original? It's a very, to me, it's a very profound statement. Fidelity, I find out most people don't know what fidelity means. Isn't that amazing? I'll be with young people on the first Well, Dr. McDowell, what's fidelity? Unbelievable. Fidelity means the same as equal to. If this book, if that candle has fidelity to that candle, then that candle is the same as that candle. Fidelity is same as or equal to. So you put it in the definition. Truth is that which is the same as equal to the original. Now what does that mean? The original. Let me give a word picture best to describe it. I make a statement. I have a bottle. I have a liter of water. This young lady down there. What's your name? Gosh, you're pretty. Were you born that pretty or did they use plastic surgery? You have a boyfriend? Good, wait until you're 30. Okay, your mother explained to you why. But you say to me, you do not. I said, I have a liter of water. You say, no, you don't. Now, is my statement true and yours false? Or is your statement true and my false? Now, truth. Truth is that which has fidelity, same as equal to the original. So what does that mean? Well, you bring your mom, I'll bring my wife, we'll fly to Paris, France. We'll go to the far-out suburb to the International Bureau of Weights and Measures, where they have all the original metric measurements, linear, liquid, solid, everything for the whole world. So we would take the metric measurement for a liter, and we would compare my liter of water with it. Now, truth is that which has fidelity to the original. Truth is that which is the same as equal to the original. If my container of water equaled the same as fidelity to the original, then my statement was true. Why? There was fidelity to the original. But if you drank a little of my water, young lady, then my statement was false. Why? There was no fidelity to the original. It was not the same as equal to the original. It was a little less. It's called the correspondence theory of truth. And so I would say truth is that which corresponds with the original, or truth is that which corresponds with reality. And then I would talk to Dawkins, okay, what basis would you have for reality? And why do you, is that just your opinion, or is there a factual reason for it? And then I would see if we could agree on truth and reality, and then I'd go from there. And I'd basically present the reliability evidence of the scriptures that God has spoken in history and give evidence of the resurrection and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, which is one of the great testimonies. Someone, but for the most part, it's a delusion. Yes, sir. May I mention that another book has appeared in England called The Dawkins Delusion. Yeah, that's what we were talking about. No, no, he said the God illusion. Oh, oh, There's the Dawkins. another one, the Dawkins illusion. There's several out like that. I won't uh, go into that detail. Uh, I may just mention, I'm speaking as a scientist, that... What type of scientist? I'm a physicist. Oh, that's right, we talked earlier. Uh, basically, there are only two debates... You believe in God, or you believe whatever you observe is the result of blind, unpurposed chance. 
I can't prove there's a God. You can't disprove it. I believe it. You can't prove it happened by blind, unpurposed chance, creation and all in it. You can't disprove it. You believe it. And I personally just don't have enough faith to be an atheist because you need a good great title deal, for a book. Great deal of faith. However, that wasn't my question. But let me, we've got a, let me ask you a question. When you say believe it, your belief that God does exist in results of that, is that an intelligent belief or a blind belief? Both. It's both, huh? Yes. Initially blind, but afterwards confirmed yeah. by intelligence. Uh, no, my question to you, sir, is you must have met up a great deal with the debate around the Jesus Seminar people who, as you know, will question the truth of the original statements. Uh, have you dealt with them? Could you tell us what your answer would be to their approach for evaluating the scriptures? Yeah. I would take new evidence that demands a verdict in a book called, oh, something on fire in the title, Dr. J.P. Moreland is the editor of it, which is extensive analysis of the Jesus Seminar. My response to it is that it's not much different than the Da Vinci Code or anything else. It's based upon human assumptions and presumptions. And I always say when you go into a debate, whether you read a book or what, you always try to find out what is the author or are the author's assumptions. What is your opponent's assumption? Because I found if I go into a debate and I don't first find out what my opponent's assumptions are, they can bury me. And with the assumption of the Jesus Seminar, and I think it's an un, uh, undefensible a non-defensible assumption is that there is no miraculous. That we live in a closed system. And if there is a God, God cannot intervene within the system. That everything within the system, it's called naturalism, must, well you well know it, sir, have a natural explanation. Well, I would disagree with that, and I deal with that in evidence that demands a verdict. That is an Now, I have my assumptions. My assumption is that we do not live in a closed system. We live in a universe created by a personal God who is personal and can intervene within the natural laws. A lot of scientists say, well, why would God create natural laws and intervene them? For the simple reason, he's the one that created them. He can do what he wants with them. And there's no, I mean, how can you tell me it's unintelligent to say he can't intervene in his own natural laws? And my assumption is that God has intervened in natural laws in history, and he did it through the person of Jesus Christ as one of many. But then, what I always had to ask are my assumptions. Do my assumptions coincide with reality? With what is? Second, is there evidence to support my assumptions? And even as a Christian, I've got to say, if, there, if my assumptions do not coincide with what I have perceived as reality and re revealed in the Scriptures, and if the evidence doesn't support it, then I have got to have the courage to change my assumptions. And so, the times I've dealt with those from the Jesus Seminar, I've almost dealt with nothing that Jesus said or anything. I've dealt with their assumptions. Because if you try to deal with what they, Jesus said this or that or this wasn't there, you're just going in circles. Because my approach is coming from my assumptions. There's coming, so let's get back and talk about the assumptions. And I have a whole section of that in new evidence. Yeah. One more question. Oops, nope, they said I got to go. Thank you for giving me the privilege of being here this afternoon. And I trust the books will help you folks. The value you get out of today won't be anything I said. It'll be what's in the resources. And then I look forward from seven tonight, coming back and sharing my testimony. And they're going to be recording it tonight because in many countries and cultures they found it's become very effective. When you hear the testimony, you see why it's very postmodern testimony.
and yet it happened 45 years ago. And so I look forward to being back here at 7 o'clock tonight, but I'm going to have to walk right out of here. I normally don't do that. I'm here an hour early, and I stay an hour later, but I've got to walk out to be able to be back. And tomorrow I have a day off to fly to Malawi. Yeah, so God bless all of you. Thank you.